Happy Lord's Day. It is good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. We are in 2 Kings chapter 6 and verses 1 through 7 today. And if you were reading ahead and you thought, surely we will get down through at least verse 23, so did I. But as I read through this passage and thought about these seven verses, I discovered they had much more to say to me than I originally intended. It is a funny thing how often patient reading of the Bible shows us amazing things we didn't see the first time through. It's just a reminder that the Holy Spirit is the one who illumines the text so that we might see gives us a little bit of application here in the introduction this morning uh, to read our Bibles patiently, thoughtfully, and prayerfully, dependent upon God's Holy Spirit. For when we take our time and give ourselves to this word, we discover that Peter's words to Jesus are true. His words are the word of life. And so I want to encourage you this morning to take your time to linger over your Bibles. Take your time to turn over passages of Scripture in your mind over and over again. Take time to take up that metaphorical shovel and dig, because there is gold in this book. It is through these words, through this book, that God speaks by His Spirit to us. One of the things he has spoken to us through his word is that he cares for us. He cares about our lives. And I've tried to wrap that truth up in the main idea of our message this morning. You can see it there on your insert. God cares about axe heads. Now, if you haven't read the passage, that might seem weird. But hopefully it will become clear as we move through the verses together this morning. God cares about axe heads. That's the main idea, and we will get there eventually uh, in a winding about path. That said, let's pray, and we will begin our time together in worship this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful Sunday where we get to gather together to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you that he is not dead, but alive. We thank you that he is risen, he is risen indeed. And so we come once more this week, as we will next if he tarries, to celebrate his resurrection from the dead once more, as we look forward to our own resurrections, as we look forward to the renewal and restoration of all things, when his rule is realized and manifest. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have spoken to us perfectly through him. We thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. We pray that you would help us to hear your voice in these words this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 6, starting with verse 1. Now, The sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. 
let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And Elisha answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And Elisha answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. This story is amazingly ordinary. It's painstakingly normal. But I think we can learn from it, both in what the sons of the prophets do and in what they do not do. First, let's think about what they do. It's, again, just very normal. They see where they are staying is too small for their number, that it doesn't quite accommodate whatever their goals are. And so they talk to one another about it. They have a conversation. They come up with a plan. And then uh, they take the plan to their authority, to Elisha, and they say, here's, here's the plan. Let's, let's move forward. What do you think about this? So they go, look, Elisha, uh, where we are currently living, it's a little small. Uh, we heard about a spot over by the Jordan. It has, it has a nice water feature there, a little waterfront we could get on. We'll, we'll all go over together. We'll do the work. Uh, what do you say? This is our plan. And Elisha says, that sounds good to me. And they say, well, will you come with us? And he says, sure, sure, let's go. And then right away, they, they go to the Jordan and they, they get the building permits that they need. They begin felling the logs and, and building their new dwelling place. It's, it's ordinary. There's recognition of an issue. There's conversation about how to address it. There's preparation. And then there is execution, just wise decision-making carried out. But that surprises us a little bit. And this is what they do not do, but we expect them to do it. They do not pray and look for God to give them a special and unique message about whether or not they should move from point A to point B. They don't do that. That surprises us a little bit, I think. We, we ex- and the other sons of prophets, after all, we expect them to have some really spiritual way of deciding where to move their dwelling place. We wonder, don't they want God's will in their life? I think we've unfortunately, had a bad approach to discovering what it is God would have us do or how he would have us obey him or how he would have us make decisions. There's a lot of well-meaning Christians and a lot of good-hearted books out there about discovering God's will for your life. Normally, what they mean, we can talk about God's will in three ways. Talk about God's will of decree, that's everything that ever comes to pass that he brings about by his providence. We can talk about God's will of desire, that are, those are the commands that God has revealed to us in his word. This is how we can know what his will is, we obey his word. And then, most of these books are aimed in this last category, God's will of direction. What does God want me to do exactly? How does he want me to decide about where to live or what job to take or who to marry? And the truth is, the Bible doesn't expect us to figure out God's wonderful plan for our lives. 
God doesn't expect you to see out into the future and to take this particular path. No, the Bible expects us to use wisdom, to use the minds that God has given us. It doesn't expect us to look for direct, extra-biblical communication from Him. He doesn't expect us to depend on impressions or feelings, though sometimes He works through those things. But even, even in the Bible, for God to act in such a way, to get direct communication from God, is a very rare thing. That's why it's so exciting when it happens. But if we just quickly look at the New Testament, we can tell that even Paul did not enjoy a direct phone line to, to God wherein God spoke to him. He's often saying, hey, I would love to make it up to see you. If things work out, maybe I'll spend the winter with you. Direct special revelation from God is extraordinary even in the Bible. And so the Bible does tell you how to live in obedience to God, how to love him, how to obey him. You, you obey his word. It's, it's given to us here. But it doesn't give us step-by-step -step tailored instructions for every decision that we make in life. When it comes to decision-making, God does indeed providentially guide the process, but he doesn't expect us to divine the future for ourselves. Apart from God working from, I'm sorry, apart from the Holy Spirit working through Scripture, God does not promise to use any other means to guide us, nor should we expect him to. Therefore, we ought not look to God as some sort of magic eight ball that we, we all right, I need to know what to do now. So, all right, tell me, God, you know, uh, what, what am I ordering off the menu? Hamburger, pizza, or salad? <sighs> Ask again later. You know, ah, no firm conviction from the Lord. I don't know what, what to do. No, the, the Bible has not set us up for that. God does not expect us to go, all right, I need a word from you, and then to randomly open our Bible and to drop our finger down and go, Spirit, guide my finger, tell me, tell me what to do. All right, let us go to the Jordan, each of us get there a log. All right, I need to go build a house. That's not, that's not how he has taught us to discern what we must do in our lives. You've probably done the Bible flip open trick. Come on, we've all done that. Trying to figure out what God would want of us. That's not, that's not how... Decision-making is laid out for us in Scripture, though. What we do see is the Bible teaches us, time and time again, to transform our minds, to think like Christ, to think holy, and to pray for wisdom. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And in James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Do you see, we're not told to ask God for a special word from him about what we ought to do next. We're told to shape our minds by the Bible and to ask for wisdom. This is why God has given us minds. 
instead of just some sort of, you know, when you're born, you, you get a life for dummies book, and it just spells out every day for you and exactly what you are supposed to do. You know, just, all right, day 12,335, wake up, brush teeth, wear yellow shirt. It, that's, not, that's not what we're told to do. That's not how God operates. He's given us a book that shows us how we can live in a way that honors him morally, but in so many of these non-moral decisions that are put before us in life, we are given the freedom to use our wisdom and decide. And I'm harping on this because I've had a number of you say to me over the past months, Pastor, somebody told me, I've heard it taught, that if I want to know what God wants from me, if I want to have real strong communion with Jesus, and I don't, I don't want to miss out on communion with Jesus, I don't want to miss out on God's will for my life, what I need to do is I need to get into a quiet place and clear my mind of all other thoughts and just sit and listen. And God will speak to me there. It's called listening prayer, Pastor. Friends, the Bible nowhere tells us to seclude ourselves and to empty our minds, and to wait for a word from God. Prayer is not about listening to God. Prayer is not about listening to God. Prayer is how we speak to God. Prayer is not how we listen to God, it is how we speak to Him. We listen to God by reading his word and submitting ourselves to the teaching of his word as the Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. God speaks to us in his word by his spirit and we speak to him in prayer. We're not told to divine God's will for our lives, that we can't make a big decision unless we have a prophetic dream. That's out of the ordinary in the Bible. We're expected to do the ordinary thing of studying God's word, telling God our, our hearts, pouring out our hearts before him, and reading his word and asking the Holy Spirit to help us apply it to our lives. But we're taught to seek wise counsel and to make wise decisions. But God is not going to send you a text message that says, do this next. We can use wisdom Prayer is not a shortcut around wise decision-making. Prayer is never an excuse to turn off your mind. Prayer is not a replacement for wisdom. I mean, if God were going to give us special messages about every decision in life, or maybe just the big important ones, so much of the Bible was pointless because God can just give me a fresh message. I don't need to study this word. He'll tell me how to live. I don't need to conform my mind so that by testing I may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I don't need to do that because God's going to tell me directly. Friends, we must practice wisdom. Now, can God give somebody special messages, prophetic dreams? Sure. Yes, he can. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Is that his normal mode of operation? Is that what we should expect in our Christian lives? No. Again, it's extraordinary even when it happens in the Bible. Don't expect 
the unexpected. Obey the word. Love God. Obey his word. Use wisdom. And then follow good desires. That's what these guys do. They have a good desire. Hey, this place is small. It's nicer by the Jordan. We'll build a house there. That seems like a good plan. Elisha, what do you think? That sounds great. Let's, let's execute. It doesn't violate God's word in regards to our morality. It's a good desire. Let's act and go after it. Make a decision. This is, this is freeing for us. I've talked to so many Christians that feel crippled because they don't know, you know, which school do I go to? And I don't want to make the wrong choice and miss out on God's will for my life. No, friend. Say, all right, what does the Bible tell me about how I should live? All right, be holy. Okay, I'm going to be holy. Now, which place, which place do I want to go to? Choose, go, love God, obey him. You can make decisions. You cannot get outside of God's plan, ultimate plan for your life. You can't get outside of his providence. Obey his word. Make decisions. You don't have to wait for a special message in the clouds before you decide to take a job or retire or maybe pursue a new course of study. Yes, Pray, yes, consult the word, yes, consult wise counselors. And yes, go ahead and make a decision. Love God, obey his word, you use wisdom and then proceed with joy. This plays out in a great myriad of ways in all of your lives, every day and every week and every month. Make decisions. It's gonna, it's gonna play out corporately for us together here over the next few months as, as we choose a new pastor. Right, we, we can trust God and go about what seems wise to us. You know, the elders have, have come up with a plan for finding a pastor, and together with them, we want to try and have conversations with them about who they're looking at and pray for them as they go about that process and talk to us about different candidates. We want to pray for God to bring us the right man. And then when he shows up, we we'll ask him questions. And if he, if he fits the profile of a pastor that Paul draws out, then, then we want to invite him to, to shepherd us, to watch over us, to teach us God's word. But we don't need to approach the process with great fear and trepidation that we might hire the wrong guy. God uses means. We can make decisions. And he will be honored. So I say that to say, let us let's not enter into this process with fear-filled anxiety, but with excitement and faith. It is an exciting time in our church where we can obey God, find a, a pastor that has the character and the skill that he tells us he ought to have in his word and, and hire him with confidence. God will make sure that his will gets done. We need to make sure that we obey his word. And we are free to make decisions. And then on this last, you know, even, even if you did pick 
you know, one of the worst possible candidates. You just enjoyed 10 years of me. You know? And it's only uphill. It's only uphill from here, brothers and sisters. That whole section was maybe a, a large rabbit trail, but I just was struck by how ordinary their decision-making process is. But all of that is really set up for what comes next. They make this ordinary decision, they make the preparation, and now they're carrying out their plan. Look at verse 5. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed! Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Again, this is sort of mundane to us, right? Like if ever a miracle could be mundane, it's iron floating in the water, isn't it? But we've been prepared for this. And when we, we look at the whole scope, this, these chapters have come to us since about chapter 4, and it'll happen up until about chapter 8. It's not in chronological order. It's just sort of a highlight reel of Elisha's ministry. And the main purpose of it is to communicate that even though Elijah is gone, that God is still with his people, that he's still at work in the world, even though Israel is filled with the darkness of idolatry. He, he hasn't left them. I mean, just think about over what we've seen over the last few weeks. And I know this miracle seems really mundane after Naaman is cleansed of leprosy, right? But just before that, we saw Elisha play ratatouille and fix some what was called death in the pot. Right? Just threw a little flour in there, made the, made the soup better for the prophets. He multiplied bread. Doesn't seem all that extraordinary. And then before that, we saw him raise the Shunammite woman's son from the dead. And before that, he made her the promise that she would have a son. That's pretty extraordinary. Open up the womb of a barren woman. And then before that, the beginning of chapter 4, we see that he gives oil that doesn't run out so that this widow can fill jars and get her sons out of debt slavery. And then in chapter 3, he, he promises victory to Israel. So what are, we, what are we supposed to see in all of these miracles working together? What is this tapestry showing us? And I think it's this, that God is sovereign over all things. He's sovereign over Israel. He's sovereign over nations. He's sovereign over his people. And he cares not only about international affairs and international conflicts. He cares about individuals. He cares about his people cares about the widow who's losing her sons to debt slavery. He cares about bad tasting stew and about axe heads. I mean, we can, we can look at the, the stew and the, the lost axe head from a distance and say, that's, that's no big deal. But to those who were experiencing this, it was a big deal. To those original readers of Kings who are on the other side, they're in the exile and or coming out of it, 
probably in the exile, they're reading this book and they're going, God hasn't left us. God is still at work. How gracious he is. He cares about axe heads and he cares about us. We, we can look at this and we go, that's a mundane miracle. It's this, these seven verses in Kings that we probably should just skip over and get on to the next story. But if we do that, we miss it. It is a big deal. It's sort of like if, if anybody else is having surgery, they're having minor surgery, right? No matter what the procedure is, right? But you might not even call it surgery. You might call it a procedure. So, you know, you hear, did you hear? You know, Bob, is, he's having a brain transplant on Tuesday. Not a big deal. I hear they do those all the time now. He'll, he'll be out on Wednesday, back on his feet on Friday. Minor procedure. Not a big deal when it's someone else. But as the adage goes, when it's you having surgery, it's a big deal. You're the one that's getting sliced and diced. And I learned this firsthand whenever, I can't remember when it was, but at some point I was talked into having my nasal passages widened and my deviated septum undeviated, okay? And part of how I was talked into this is I sat in the doctor's office and he said to me, it is a routine procedure. The recovery is easy no big deal. What a liar. Never, never trust a doctor. I don't know if I should say that. But yeah, it was routine for him. He does them all the time. But for me, I spent the next week mouth breathing with a band-aid strapped beneath my nose collecting blood. It was horrific. Awful. It was routine for him. It was a big deal for me. No, I haven't lost the plot here. Here's the point of the illustration. This might seem routine to us from the outside, but if we put ourselves in the shoes of the one who lost the axe head, we understand that it is a big deal. It matters. In fact, we see it matters a good bit in verse 5 when this seminary student, this disciple of Elisha, calls out to him, it was borrowed. What is he saying? It's important because iron, which the axe head was made of, is not super available in ancient Israel. It's expensive. It's a costly material. And so he can't afford his own axe, and he's borrowed one. Well, God's law requires that if you borrow something from somebody and it breaks on your watch, that you compensate them for that. Well, what's likely to happen if you can't pay back the debt that's owed? We already saw this at the beginning of chapter 4. Debt slavery. This guy is in trouble. I couldn't really think of a good modern parallel, but work with me here. Imagine insurance didn't exist and that you were too poor to afford a car. And so uh, you borrow a car from a friend. Not like David's roller skate over there, you know, but like a nice car, you know, really nice, far beyond your ability to purchase on your own ever. And so you get into that and you're driving and then all of a sudden deer in the road, I mean, you, you hit it head on, it, you can't believe you walk away from the accident unscathed, but the car is totaled, there's no insurance and you have no money. In a way of paying them back. In a bad spot. This guy is in a bad position 
And so he does what all of us ought to do, right? He calls out to the Lord. He recognizes, he's like, I can't just run down to the true value and get another axe head. I need help. And so he cries out to Elisha, and implicit in his cry is, do something to help me. Elisha makes the axe head float, restores it to him. Here's the the main idea, the big thing in this text that you should walk away with, is that that God cares about axe heads, and he cares about your axe heads. He cares about little things like this. You see it in Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. Remember, he's uh, going to Peter's house. He's going to have some lunch, I guess. And Peter's mother-in-law is laying there on the couch. She's got a fever. And he touches her hand. Fever leaves her. A little miracle just for her. They could have managed without her. But Jesus is compassionate. He cares about her and so takes care of that fever. Or you think about the bleeding woman. You know, Jesus is on his way to heal a little girl who we later learn is dead, so he's going to raise her from the dead, and all the crowd is pressing in on him, and this, this one woman who has been bleeding for years and years, spent all her money on doctors, thinks to herself, if I can get close to Jesus, if I can just reach out and touch the fringe of his garment, I will be made well. And she gets close enough to him, and she gets her fingertips on his garment, and she's made well instantly. And Jesus, he has her explain to the crowd, who power just went out from me, who touched me? You know, like a bunch of people are touching you. He's like, no, no, she did. Something happened. And so she tells everybody about her ailment and about how she had been made well. But really, there's no way for anybody to confirm that she had been sick in the first place or that Jesus had healed her. The miracle is for her. Jesus cares about her. Or maybe you think of the centurion servant. Remember the centurion's servant, he's got palsy, he's paralyzed, and he comes to Jesus, says, my servant is ill, will you, will you come and make him well? And Jesus is like, I'll just give you a word, he's well. And the centurion goes back and he meets someone on the way, and they say, he says, hey, the servant is better. And he says, when did this happen? He figures out it was exactly when Jesus said that his son would be well. Now, crowds probably heard the conversation, but this doesn't, this doesn't really add to Jesus' profile at the time. Nobody knows that the servant was actually sick or that Jesus actually made him better. Jesus does the miracle because he cares about the individual. He cares about these people and their anxieties and their afflictions. A fever might not seem like a big deal to us. It's a minor thing, really. But Jesus breaks it. The woman's bleeding is an awful plight. It's a secret suffering. Jesus knows it, and he stops it. The centurion's servant is in terrible pain, and Jesus relieves it. Of course, Jesus doesn't heal every ailment that you or I might have. He doesn't make all of our problems vanish overnight. He doesn't heal everything. Not yet. But he does hear every prayer. He does care He is compassionate. He cares about people. He loves them. You see that he cares about the details of your life. 
Sometimes we have such a hard time believing that God is upholding the universe by the word of his power and he cares about us. He cares about you and me. But he does. I mean, just look how Jesus teaches us to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. That's not, I mean, there is a spiritual component to that. But on the face of us, it's, it's feed us today because we need food to live. Jesus cares about our daily bread, about our daily need. He cares about the things that stress us out, our daily anxieties. Just think later in that same chapter, after Jesus has taught his disciples to pray in the Sermon on the Mount, he tells them, don't worry, don't be anxious. And what does he tell them not to be anxious about? Well, let's look, verse 25, Matthew chapter 6. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Therefore, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Because the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God cares about your food, about your clothing, about your anxieties. The number of hairs on your head, the hairs on your head are numbered. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of your heavenly Father. Friends, God cares about you. He cares about the little details in your life. He cares about your lost axe heads and all of your crises. And he commands you, don't be anxious about these things. Seek my kingdom. Seek to live righteously. and I will add them to you. He commands us not to be worrisome, but to trust him, and he promises us his peace. Promises that for us through the pen of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4. I'm just going to read verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what are your axe heads this week? This next six months? This next year? It is such a temptation 
to be mastered by unbelief in this arena. To allow our fears to dictate how we will behave. But friends, we must master our fears by our faith in Christ who rules over all. To remind ourselves that nothing comes to us by chance, but that all things come to us from the Father's hand. To remind ourselves that, that he who did not spare his own son in saving us, well, how will he not also give us all good things? He's for our good. We can trust him. What, what are your axe heads? Cry out to God. Pray to God about your anxieties. That's the thing about being a Christian. In many ways, we, we never stop being children. And I've, I've noticed in some of my kids, as they get older, they, they cry less and less, which is good. I don't, I'm not a huge fan of the howling cry that kids get when they get hurt or whatever. Um, sometimes you come to my house, you can stand outside at the end of the driveway, and you hear, and it's not a ghost, it's someone's in pain. But as we get older, just stop crying. It just happens one day, right? I don't think, I, don't think I ever made a conscious decision, I'm not going to cry anymore. It just happens. And I think that, that's what happens to us as Christians. We get wrapped up in our lives and in the busyness of, of each day, and we, we just stop crying. <laughs> we stop praying to the Lord. Friends, if we are to be faithful disciples, we must never grow out of crying out. Cry out to the one who died for your sins. Cry out to the one who died so that your cries can be heard by your Father in heaven. He will supply exactly what you need. It's not always immediate deliverance but it is always good. And here, one of the sons of the prophets is restored. Look at verse 6 again. The man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And Elisha said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it up. This not-so-mundane miracle potentially saves this young man from debtor's prison, debtor's slavery. It's an extraordinary miracle that Elisha delights to perform. And then he tells him, take hold. Take it up. The man takes it out of the water. Non-Christian Jesus Christ has performed the greatest of all miracles. He has reconciled God and man. He has defeated death. Jesus Christ has won eternal life for all who will turn from their sins and obey his word. Jesus Christ gives life to all who will take hold of him by faith. The miracle of eternal life is before you this morning, my friends. If you will take it up, 
take hold of Christ this morning. Drop the chains of your sin and your slavery and take hold of the easy yoke of Christ. Become a Christian. Repent of your sins. Be baptized. Walk together with the body of Christ through this life and into eternity. Christian, remember your axe head moments. Take some time this afternoon and just maybe 10, 15 minutes and just write down somewhere all of the wonderful things that God has done for you over over the last year, two years. Think of the really difficult times that you were in, the prayers that you prayed, and how God responded and how he provided just what you needed, how he gave you grace in the past. Remember his past grace to you and trust his future grace to you. He will give you just what you need for the next crisis, for the next axe head. Trust him. Remember your axe head moments and trust him for future ones. Also, pray for the axe heads of one another. I'm going to be praying for one another. The most loving thing you can do for another person is to pray for them. Look beyond yourself and consider where others are, what crisis they may be struggling with, and pray for them. And not only that, think about how you might be the means by which God answers that prayer. Here, it's Elisha. The son of the prophet calls out, and Elisha is there to help him. But maybe... It's some small crisis. You know somebody who has some need. They're praying for them, and you know they're praying about a particular situation, and you realize all at once, I have the resources and the skills to float that axe head. Think about how you might care well for others in their crisis. Don't fall into the trap of seeing only your problems and no one else's. Heard an anecdote this week about a British prime minister. He served four different times throughout the 19th century. His name was William Gladstone. So during his days in office, there was this unnotable man who used to clean the streets out in front of Parliament. And so those who frequented the building, well, they knew the man's face, and some even knew his name. One day, the common street cleaner was not about his customary work. And so, a Christian worker in the city asked after him. Where was he? Where did he live? What had happened? Eventually, he discovered him lying sick in a little attic room furnished only by the barest of necessities. The Christian worker asked the street sweeper, Are you lonely? Has anyone visited? Yes, the man replied. Mr. Gladstone visited me. He sat right there on that stool and read the Bible to me. Christian worker was amazed. Here, the prime minister of Great Britain, who probably had a million things to do that day, had come to sit and read the scriptures 
to a common street cleaner. What an excellent picture of what God does for us and what our posture should be toward others. God is not aloof or uninterested in you. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he is interested in the most insignificant of us. The Father gave his only Son so that through him he might adopt us as sons. He loves us and sees us. He sees our greatest need, reconciliation with him, and he sees our tiny needs. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. And your axe heads matter to him. Isn't that incredible? We want to stand amazed at God's love for us, the fact that he cares about axe heads. And we also want to be like our great God and King. We want to care about the axe heads of others. We want to have that posture that Paul describes of the Lord Jesus in Philippians 2. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Friends, God cares about axe heads. Cry out to him knowing that he cares for you. God cares about axe heads. Therefore, we ought to care about the axe heads of others. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is amazing to us that you take thought of us at all. You, the creator and sustainer of all things, love us, your creation, to the extent that though we set ourselves against you in unholy rebellion, you sought to save us. You sent Jesus Christ to lift us out of the grave Lord, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful truth. We thank you that Jesus became one of us, died on the cross for our sins. We can be forgiven of them. 
and that he has risen from the dead so that he may rule and reign and raise us up together with him. Christ is our hope. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have loved us in this way and that you are involved not only in the cosmic redemption of all things, not only in the individual redemption of each one of your children, but that you are also intimately involved in all the little details of our lives. We thank you that you care for us. This love is it's too astounding for us. We cannot comprehend how wide and deep your love for us is. Help us to sense your presence, to sense your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.